Doug Barasa, thank you so much for joining us here on Speak to a Lawyer. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, we're both real estate lawyers, although I'm sure we have a very different practice. I'm very excited to get into the nitty gritty details with you about your practice and a bit about real estate law. I'd like to start at the very beginning. Where are you from, Doug, and what prompted you to study law? Well, first off, thanks for having me. I'm a, a big fan. I've enjoyed a lot of your episodes, and I think it's great that you're doing this. So I'm really happy to be here and speak about this. Um, I'll begin. So I'm from Calgary, Alberta. Uh, I grew up the son of a lawyer. My father is a lawyer, um, but he's from a bit of a different age because he was the type of lawyer who his area of specialty was law. He did it all. He did criminal, he did real estate, he did litigation, he did commercial law, he did solicitor's work, estates and wills. That was back in a time where people would come out of law school, hang a shingle and take all comers. Um, Obviously, the practice of law that I'm engaged in now is very different. I'm a lawyer at, at Torque & Mains here in Toronto with 120 lawyers or something like that. Very different beast, and everyone becomes a lot more specialized. But um, I grew up um, being a bit of a gopher in my dad's law firm. I did a lot of closed files. Um, that was my specialty, which really just meant marking down which ones I was taking out to the dumpster. <laughs> That's really my experience at law uh, with my father. And as it happened, um, both of my dad's kids, my mother and dad's kids, myself and my sister, both ended up becoming lawyers. My sister practiced in um, Montreal, and I practice here in Toronto. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about growing up uh, with a father for a lawyer is until I began practice, I had no idea what he did all day. <laughs> Didn't have the foggiest idea. Um, well, they must have set a good example some way for you to follow suit. Well, you know, I think everyone comes to it for their own reasons. And, you know, for for me, my experience with coming to getting a law degree wasn't to follow in my father's footsteps, although that's what I ended up doing. Um, I was one of those students who came out of high school and didn't have the foggiest idea what to do. And my undergrad degree was a six-year odyssey across four different institutions in three provinces. I was an engineering student, I was a chemistry student, and I ended up with a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy. I just had no idea what I wanted to do. And through university, I just eventually gravitated towards things that I found most interesting. And I remember very clearly, I was at the end of my philosophy degree, which I quite enjoyed. I, you know, I, I don't particularly care what some dead Greek guy said, but I'm interested in what the next dead Greek guy said he was wrong. I found that sort of study of critical thinking really fun. And I remember very clearly at the end of that degree, sort of faced with the choice, do I want to pursue that? or do I want to try law school? I remember looking around the campus and I ultimately got my degree at University of Western Ontario. And the campus there is beautiful. I mean, it's 
it's bucolic, especially in the spring. There's, you know, young people frolicking on the big grass lawn. It's just perfect. It's everything you can imagine. I remember yeah. looking around and thinking to myself, this is really good. But if I pursue a master's, this is it. And that wasn't enough for me. And so I made the decision I wanted to go to law school. And, you know, if I want to speak really bluntly, I loved in philosophy the argument, but I'm ego-driven enough that I loved the audience that law school would give me. <laughs> so what did I want? I wanted both an audience and an argument, and that's why I ended up in law school. Um, I was this sort of law student who... Um, litigation was the only path for me. I, I didn't understand uh, solicitor's work. Uh, not that I'm looking down on it, but it was never for me. So in, in the introduction, you said I'm a real estate lawyer like you, and that's only part true. Well, I'm I had more. I had more to the introduction that uh, um, we get into the differences. How you're a litigation lawyer in the, in real estate, but uh, yeah, you, it's it's very cool how you found your found you found your footing and you found your path in litigation right off the get go. Yeah, it it um, it in my mind, um, I never had a hankering for transactional work uh, when I imagined that I was a lawyer, it was always in a courtroom. That That's where it had to be for me. Um, I loved in law school doing moots. I loved any sort of presenting. I loved making speeches, much to my professor's chagrin. Um, that oral advocacy piece of it was something that I was drawn to right away. Wow. So, I mean, you've you've got some amazing uh, experience in the courtroom uh, since becoming a lawyer, including appellate work, uh, all sorts of uh, courts throughout Ontario. How, how did you give me the first steps when you graduated from articling onwards to, you know, how did you get to ultimately where you are today? But give me your first bits of courtroom experience. Um, I remember the first thing I said in court verbatim. I remember every word that I said on my first court appearance. Can I relate it to you? Please. The judge said, Mr. Barassa, do you consent? And I said, <clears throat> yes. I nailed it. <laughs> that was everything I said. I consented the hell out of that motion. <laughs> and I was so proud about it. You got, you got to start somewhere. That's right. And... You know, that's always been the way for me. Um, you know, you see those bumper stickers that a bad day fishing is better than a good day at the office or whatever. A bad day in court to me is better than any other day that I can have in the office. Um, I don't care if my motion is a consent matter that doesn't matter. I don't care if it's unopposed. I don't care if it's silly, procedural, substantive, contested. I just want to be in a courtroom. Um, that's sort of, that's kind of the thing that makes me come alive with this job. Um, you know, there's really something about litigation that I think is often overlooked. And that's that this job that I have, it's a performance profession, right? 
it culminates, all the backroom work we do culminates in a performance, right? And that performance starts the moment you walk through the courtroom and how you treat the staff, how tall you stand next to your client in the eyes of the opponent, all those little things about being professional, being the voice of reason, being in control and being confident, all of those elements are performative. doesn't mean they're lies when I say that. I'm saying something different. I'm saying it is um, purposeful. Mm-hmm. And it is not simply a matter of showing up and delivering a speech. It's very different than that. The art of advocacy is different than that. It's performative. Mm-hmm. It needs to have the substance behind it, of course. But if you miss out on the performance part, you're not doing your job. Mm -hmm. Because if there's no performance, all you've got is a written record. And why did you bother showing up? Mm -hmm. I mean, I see you get so much satisfaction out of the courtroom experience. If I may, what are the frustrations? Like, you know, if you're doing a whole performance and the judge just doesn't get it. What's frustrated you over the years about the process? Um. Well, first off, if the judge doesn't get what I'm saying, the failing is mine, right? Mm-hmm. Number one job is to be a communicator, right? I, I remember very early on in um, my practice, I was in front of a judge who had recently been appointed. And, you know, I was arguing some type of mortgage enforcement thing or some procedural thing, not particularly complicated, but Mm -hmm. specific to the subject matter. And the judge said to the courtroom, I have just recently been appointed. I practiced law in the area of tax for 25 years, and I'm an expert in that field. I am the person in this room with the least knowledge about the subject you're asking me to decide. I need you to educate me. And thank goodness that judge had the humility to say that. He ended up, I've been in front of him a dozen times, he's an excellent judge. But it's a great reminder to young lawyers out there, just because someone's wearing a red sash, it doesn't mean that they're an expert in the area of law that you're talking about. They might have no idea what you're talking about. You know, they may have practiced for years in estates, you know, and now you want to talk to them about civil procedure. Maybe their specialty was real estate, and now you have to tell them about personal injury law or something. Mm-hmm. So if a judge is not getting what I'm saying, I'm failing in my role of clearly educating and communicating to the judge. You know, I cannot assume that that judge knows everything about the area of law that mm-hmm. I'm arguing about. And it's my job to make sure that the leading cases and the proper factors are before that judge. Now, they may disagree with my application of that test entirely. They may not buy what I'm selling. But if they're not understanding or not getting what I'm selling, the failing is mine. My written material wasn't clear enough, or I need to go slower. And there's an assumption I haven't even realized I'm making because I'm so close to the case that the judge hasn't made because he or she isn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much a two-way street. One of the most difficult things for me as a litigator is when I appear in front of a judge 
and they sit there stone-faced like an obelisk, merely writing notes. I find it maddening because I have no idea if they're understanding my argument. Mm -hmm. I am a big believer in having an exchange with the judge. And as I become more confident over the years, uh, I'll interrupt my submissions to say, Your Honor, this is a key point for me. I need to make sure that the court understands this point. Do you have any questions about this? And I'll invite that discussion. There's nothing wrong about that, but it draws to the court's attention how important this element is and how crucial it is that it be understood. And hopefully it can spark a bit of back and forth because when the judge starts asking me questions, then I have a better sense of where the pressure points are and where I can direct my focus. Mm -hmm. The worst thing is if I'm just giving a speech to a stone-faced note-taker. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds like you have incredible ability and confidence in the courtroom. Can you go back to the early days about uh, maybe mentorship, about uh, people, uh, lawyers who maybe gave you such confidence and ability? Who did you learn from? I, I heard from the grapevine you, you did articles with uh, Joe Groyer, uh, a legend on Bay Street. I, I interviewed him in the past. And uh, I mean, other such uh, people you've worked with. I think I put your name in Canley and I think 87 plus references came up. So you, you've been all over the courtrooms in Ontario and, and worked alongside some amazing lawyers throughout the years. I mean, how do you how did you develop such such ability and confidence? Um, well, I'll leave the judgment to whether I've developed any ability to others. It's flattering. Um, I hope I have, but that's not for me to say. Um, I did article it with Joe Groya, an excellent lawyer, um, probably a better person than he is a lawyer. Um, I have only great things to say about him. Uh, he was very good to me, and his firm was very good to me. I listened to your interview with him. It was like hearing from an old friend, so it was really nice to hear his perspective on what he went through. Um, having all of those mentors is absolutely crucial. After I articled at Groya's firm, I then went to a small 20-lawyer firm called Chaitin's. And the best thing that happened to me there was that I was in court all the time. All the time. Every week I was in court on something or other. Not big things, not huge earth-shattering things, but I was getting in an awful lot of repetition. And litigation and advocacy, you cannot learn but by doing. You can't practice your craft in a dress rehearsal. You need to be going to the show. And... You know, when I was there, I received great mentorship from a couple, from a bunch of lawyers there. One in particular, now retired, a guy named Mark Hartman, who really prided himself on the role of an advocate as an officer of the court. And he took that very, very seriously. That when he appeared before a judge, first off, that judge would remember how he behaved the next time, which is very true. <laughs> and he would be scrupulously fair. 
That was what he prided himself on. He was incredibly fair. If there was a case that was against him that the other side didn't reference, he would bring it up. He would distinguish it. What a powerful advocacy tool and lesson that was for me to see him do that, to recognize his role as an officer of the court required him to bring up a leading authority that the other side had missed that would hurt him. Now, as it happens, when a judge sees a lawyer do that, all of a sudden the respect and confidence that the bench has for those submissions is elevated. So it turns out that weaponized fairness, that mm-hmm. scrupulous honesty, was a powerful advocacy tool. And I got to see him deploy that time after time. And, um, you know, one of the great lessons I had as a young lawyer was I got the privilege of going to dozens of different little courts throughout the province. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that matters is because you learn very quickly that every court does things a little different. Maybe their robing room is different. Maybe you need a pass card. Maybe you need a pass code. Maybe you're not allowed to use it. Maybe you have to rent a locker. Maybe you can't rent a locker. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have to join their law association. And that's before you step into the courtroom. That's just getting changed. And then when you get into the courtroom, how do you get your order back? The judge mm-hmm. agrees, signs an order. In some courthouses, you have to follow after the commissioner down to the court office in some they give it to you you take a photograph all of them have their own little practices and procedures Mm -hmm. and by going to all these different courts i learned very early on that you're a stranger in a strange land and you're a guest and you need to behave yourself accordingly the last thing anyone wants to hear is well in Toronto we do it this way I mean that's that's the best way to get yourself chased out of town (laughs) Um, there is no monopoly on good lawyers and smart judges in Toronto they're everywhere and when you're a guest in one of those other jurisdictions you play the tune that they're playing and especially in those smaller jurisdictions lawyers make reputations fast (laughs) and it's it's kind of a truism, but people, a stink lasts longer than something that's unobjectionable. So when you blow it, when you do something bad, when you take a position that is foolish, when you fight about something that ought not be fought about, mm-hmm. when you take that sort of role, they remember. And then you're in front of that judge the next week. Mm-hmm. Are they going to believe what you have to say? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Probably not. Yeah, I mean, you you have such a an incredible, incredible, and incredibly specialized career. Um, I would say now in real estate litigation, and that's a broad umbrella includes uh, fraud, mortgage enforcement. I want to get into a few details there, um, which I'm interested in touch upon my solicitor's real estate practice as well. But before we get there. You know, you said your father was a general practitioner. For someone who's trying to figure out what practice to uh, pursue in law, per se, they just passed the bar exam or graduated law school, how did you develop such a nice, interesting niche 
and uh, how do, how do you how does someone discover that for themselves? I mean, you you also coming from the the firm, a big firm perspective with a lot of different practice areas. So, uh, a tail end question to that is: Do you see any hot areas of law which people should look into? Um, the answer to the question is through accident and audacity. Um, I certainly never woke up one day and said, I would like my specialty to be real estate related litigation. And I think for most people, that's true. That's true. Very few of us wake up one morning and say, this is the type of lawyer I would like to be. And come hell or high water, I will be that type of lawyer. Um, I think instead, as a young lawyer, you gravitate towards the things that you're enjoying. And for me, it was just getting into court. As it happened, the place I was at, where there was a lot of work, it was real estate related. And when I say accident and audacity, the accident part, I never took a real estate class in law school. Never seen a title or a mortgage. Um, I had no interest. I was interested in litigation, plain and simple. The audacity part is, you know, when you're a young lawyer, you should have the audacity to say yes when someone invites you to do something you haven't done before. You know, obviously, you're not going to be audacious enough to take a bet the company litigation that's way above you. But saying I'm not sure I'm ready for that, as a young lawyer, I don't think that's your, your call. You know, if, if someone's giving you work, they offer it to you, the answer is yes, and then you learn about it after. Mm -hmm. That's really the audacity that it takes. You know, um, I, don't, I don't believe that anyone is successful solely through their own hard work. I believe it's a combination of hard work, opportunity, accident, good fortune. You know, if you don't do the hard work, You'll never get there, but on its own, that's not enough. There's lots of people who work really hard. I was fortunate to fall backwards into uh, a bunch of, of areas of the law that I enjoyed, and I took the opportunity to pursue it. And I'll tell you a quick little story. I do a fair bit of speaking at Law Society Continuing Professional Development events. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that I enjoy. And, and we enjoy the, uh, hearing you there, so keep it up. Uh, um, the first time that it came up, I was working at my old firm, and it was a, um, I got a call from the senior lawyer, and he said, um, I think I need you to deliver this speech for me. I said, okay. Um, why? And he said, oh, I have to be in court, so I can't make it. All right. Uh, when is it? Tomorrow. Oh, okay. What's it about? And he told me, I had no idea about that area of the law. <laughs> None whatsoever. And I said, yes. I had the audacity to say, you know what? I can do that. He thinks I can do it, so why should I think that I can't do it? Let's do it. And so I went home and sort of read the paper that I had to read and got all nervous for the next day. And I went up there, I delivered my speech. And when I got back to the office, um, one of the senior lawyers, not from our firm, from another firm who had been watching it, 
wrote a letter to my boss where he said, um, I was dismayed to see that you were going to be speaking yet again because I've heard you too many times. Thank goodness you were replaced by your young associate, Doug. I hope he continues to replace you at every opportunity in the future. <laughs> That's amazing. And there's a couple of things to take away from that. Number one, the audacity piece. Yeah, sure, I'll pretend I know about this area of the law and pretend to be an expert. If someone had asked me a hard question about it, I doubt I could have answered. Number two, um, that letter that that other lawyer wrote. What a great thing for a senior lawyer to do for a young lawyer's career and confidence. He didn't have to write that letter. It was tongue-in-cheek. He was poking fun at my boss. But it was also a way of saying, this guy, Doug Barassa, fits in and belongs. He can do that. And, you know, one thing that I have learned from doing a lot of these speaking events, I am forever grateful for all of those senior lawyers who appear on them. You know, for many years, I was, um, I was the token non-gray hair at these events. Uh, I, would, I usually found myself to be one of the younger people who was speaking at them. And the senior lawyers welcomed me into that fraternity of speakers without hesitation. I've made some great relationships with people over the years. And they've really made, made me feel welcome and made me feel as though I belong. And somewhere along the way, you accidentally become an expert when you do these things often enough. <laughs> you know, And that's very much what happened to me. Um, I, I didn't know anything about real estate, but, you know, through saying yes often enough, I found myself in a position where I've acquired a little bit of knowledge about it now. And, you know, if someone thinks that makes me particularly skilled at it, that's great. That's an incredible attitude and uh, being grateful for the right time and the right place. And uh, you should continue to be very successful, you know, continue to be at the right place at the right time. Um, Getting, getting, uh, taking this opportunity to pick your brain a little bit about the, the real estate. Um, I mean, me as a solicitor, uh, you, you either suing us or defending us, and uh, we're some sometimes a party to proceedings. Sometimes it's uh, a lender. Um, you know, what what are the big issues? Maybe um, real estate is typically an area that is uh, full of claims. I think uh, Law Pro, our insurer, says it's the the most claimed area of law as uh, along with uh, estate planning which i happen to do as well um i'm i'm lucky uh, thank god knock on wood i've i've never had a claim but uh, I, i'm wondering like the claims you've seen is it solicitor incompetence uh, lack of knowledge um you know what what does the the claims usually stem from or is it um, in some situations, just uh, like there's nothing they could do. And, and one example comes to, to mind, uh, we're having issues with uh, wiring. It has to be there by 5 p.m. Sometimes it's not really the lawyer's fault. Is that something that is actionable? Um, give, me, give me some examples of cases that come across your, your desk uh, regarding solicitors. Well, let me, let me begin by saying this. Um, real estate solicitors you know, particularly those who are dealing in the residential space, um, they are getting squeezed every which way. 
all of the financial pressures of their practice um, push them to deliver, to do a volume service. Whereas all of the professional obligations demand that their volume service be a bespoke service. Mm -hmm. And they have little pricing power and they have little ability to recoup the extra time that it takes. It's a very difficult situation. So here's what I mean by that. If someone's buying a house, there's kind of a going rate for the legal fees. You're not generally going to be able to bill by the hour. Maybe you can, but not for the large volume guys. That's not the business model. And if you're doing flat fees, that creates a pressure to do them as quickly and cheaply as possible. On the other hand, as the practice has become more systematized, as the law society obligations and negligence law has become more specific, the obligations that you are expected to meet for that same flat fee are going up, but the flat fee isn't. And that's what I mean when I say real estate solicitors are really in a squeeze. Um, that kind of leads to the point of what types of claims I see. Um, a lot of them stem from that pressure of trying to push volume out the door and do multiple transactions um, and not being able to pay as close attention as they necessarily should. You know, there are some bad actors out there who abdicate their practice and just have a law clerk manage it, and that's a recipe for disaster. But that delegation piece is a challenging one for everyone in the real estate bar because the financial model presses you to delegate where the negligent obligations require you to focus particularly. So it's very difficult. Um, speaking about the types of files that I have seen, um, particularly uh, in 2022, I saw a lot of failed sale transactions. You know, as the market was moving, people were buying a property at, you know, a million bucks. And then when they go to sell theirs, they realize they can only get, you know, 600 instead of the 800, they thought, and they're not going to be able to close. And um, I saw a lot of that in 2022. I don't see as much of that now. From a solicitor negligence point of view, you know, the wiring piece that you talked about, that's really interesting. I've seen it in my practice. I'm not going to speak about the specifics because it's still active, but um, for there is a pressure to transact everything by wire nowadays. Why? Because it's irreversible. It's real money. There's no clearance risk. So vendors love it because they get the money and the money's for real and they don't have to ask about it. Um, the problem with wires is while there's no clearance risk, there can be a time delay because you say click you click your mouse I would like the wire to go and then it's out of your hands and you know you can try to wrestle with the bank has it arrived yet how about now how about now mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's a fool's errand you know I find 
if the parties want a transaction to close, those issues are never a problem, right? Mm -hmm. It's only a problem when someone's looking to get out of the deal and they're seeking to alight upon an error of the other side to get them out scot-free. There's almost an element, when, when someone is in, re, in a real estate transaction is scrupulously guarding the specifics of their contractual entitlements, it sends a very clear message that they are at best indifferent to whether this transaction close or downright hostile and hoping that you can't close because maybe they want to go back to market and sell at a higher rate or something like that. I don't know. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think you find out during a transaction quite quickly if someone genuinely wants it to close because there are a million solutions that you can put in place for that. Mm. That's, that's what I see. Okay, and are there are there indicators in your practice like uh, um, high interest rates, for example, that have brought on a lot of power of sale work? Uh, is is that is there a correlation there? Um, I mean, yes, but I think it's important to pay attention to the actual numbers. Because, uh, and I trot out this statistic every now and again, the Canadian Bankers Associ Association, they maintain statistics about uh, mortgage defaults um, across the various um, provinces in Canada. So every quarter, they do a survey and they say, here's how many mortgages are outstanding held by the 11 largest institutions in the country. Mm -hmm on a province-by-province province basis, and here's the number that are in default. So the um, Ontario has roughly 2.2 million mortgages outstanding with the biggest 11 borrowers. And the number that are in default as of January 19th is 2,312. Wow, small it's nothing. Right. It's nothing. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely nothing. Um, it's barely 0.1%, right? But that doesn't account the private uh, lenders, right, which is probably more. True, True. Uh, but private money is not nearly as big a player. There aren't 2.2 million private mortgages out there. And an interesting point to think about, and now we're getting into the nitty-gritty of the practice area, is um, the privates are generally interest rate agnostic because they don't often float, mm -hmm. right? They're often fixed rates, so um, I, I think it is more common than not in the case of a private mortgage that it has a fixed rate. So the fact that the Bank of Canada has jacked the rates up a bunch doesn't change. If you could have afford if you could afford the mortgage before, you can afford it now because the rate hasn't changed. Got it. Where where people are getting squeezed on the private side is when um, it comes time for renewal and the renewal terms now bake in the new higher rate. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's obviously going to be some pain in that sector, but, um, you know, private lending is higher risk to the lenders, higher reward to the lenders, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's part of it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we've gone through so many changes in the last few years, um, interest rates being one of them, but even before that, the pandemic was... 
a big factor in our lives. Uh, you know, we all started working remotely. How, how did the pandemic affect you and your practice? Well, I'm glad you asked. The pandemic was not kind to me. Um, so I joined my current firm in March of 2021. And um, that was just around the time that uh, the vaccines were coming out. And I was very eager to get vaccinated. I thought that was important. I still do. And um, around late April, I got vaccinated. And I was one of a very, very, very small group of people who had a serious adverse reaction called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And I ended up hospitalized for about three, three and a bit months. And I was largely paralyzed with no feeling in my arms and legs. Oh my, sorry to hear that. 2021. Um, There's, I I think at last count, like 30 people in the country who had some flavor of this. Out of 100 million shots, those are good odds. You know, I'd take those odds any. Um, But for me, the pandemic um, nearly cost me my practice. Um, I was very fortunate uh, that my new colleagues, who I hadn't met in person (laughs) because I just joined, were incredibly supportive. And they sort of managed my practice while I was unable. And you know, that event um, gave me yet a newfound appreciation for the fact that I get to do this. It is such a privilege to get to play in the sandbox. It is such a joy to get to go to court, to have someone trust you with their big problem, to be in a position to do that for people. Um, You know, just because you've done it before doesn't mean you'll always be able to do it. And that's what this pandemic taught me, um, that this thing we get to do, um, it's special, it's... And we're incredibly fortunate that we get to do it. And I don't think I had the same appreciation for it before I had this illness um, that I had afterwards. And I want to sort of round off the story. So um, to this day, you know, I have mobility issues and what have you. Um, I'm not in a wheelchair anymore, so that's great. But I walk with a pronounced limp, and, you know, that's probably how it's going to be. But that's okay. Um, I was fortunate that one of my cases was in the Supreme Court of Canada last December. So, a little over a month ago. Um, For people who practice in the area that I practice, the Supreme Court is a mirage in the distance that you will never reach. Mm -hmm. Because... Commercial cases don't get there that often. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I'm not a criminal law lawyer. Those are the guys that go all the time, not commercial lawyers. And one of my cases went all the way up the chain. And standing there at that podium in that forum, 
and my wife and my daughters came up and my girls were proud of me and to stand there and think of how far I had come and how fortunate I was to get to do this made such an impact on me. Um, getting to go to the big show, it's every lawyer's dream and it was everything I could have hoped for. I wish I could have had longer to speak, but you know, what are you going to do? Uh, I got to speak. I got to perform in the big leagues. Uh, it was a special moment in so many ways. It was a p pinnacle of my professional career. And, it, you know, it was a, a real summit sort of on my recovery from this illness. Um, wow. The last thing I want to say about this because I suspect this is not how you expected that answer to turn. No, but I, I'm happy we went that way. I mean, that's inspirational. Um, the last thing that I'll say about it, it's funny having an illness with a political dimension because a lot of strangers have a lot of strong feelings about um, you know, vaccines and what have you. The only thing that I'll say about it is I remained strongly in favor of them. And now that I cannot get vaccinated and my health has been compromised, I'm all the more reliant on other people to do it to keep me safe. So I took one for the team. Now step up, everybody. Nice. <laughs> That's my public service announcer for you. Nice. Like I said, really inspiring to hear your gratitude and appreciation for life and the, and the work you do. And I think that's what it's about, ultimately. I mean, just loving loving what you do and, and going to work every day with a smile on your face. Um, you just reminded me on the whole vaccine note that right in the thick of COVID, when I interviewed uh, Judge, Judge Ian, Ian Binney, I asked I him about that. And uh, he was also strong. And he said, yep, everyone's got to do it. You know, if... if uh, if one, it's like, uh, I think he said, uh, um, opening up the plane or something like that, wearing a seatbelt, you know, you have to, you have to do it. It's a public service announcement, like you said. So, um, full, full circle over there. I mean, that, that, um, appreciation and gratitude is contagious. You, you inspired me to really appreciate what we do every day. Um, on that note, is there any uh, book recommendation that uh, a book that's inspired you that you can maybe suggest to other people to find such a, a beautiful perspective? I'm not going to mention a book. I'm going to mention something far nerdier and sadder. <laughs> <laughs> um, for many years now, I have had uh, an RSS feed on the Canley website that sends every new Ontario Superior Court of Justice case to my desktop as they are published. And what do I read? What do I find entertaining? Give me case law. They are short stories, every single one of them. They are dramas with players, with schemes and dreams and hopes. And, you know, for me, if I think of cases as stories, they come alive. And, you know, when I, when I give a speech where I'm trying to explain a legal principle, if I start with the principle, everyone's eyes glaze over and it's no fun. If I start with a story, people can grab hold to it. And people can get really interested in it. 
And if I think about cases as stories, they come alive for me. I'm going to give you a really quick example because it's one of my favorite cases of all time because it's so absurd. So bear with me as we go down the annals of case law. Please. It's a case called Royal Bank of Canada versus Kiska. And this was a guarantee enforcement case. So the Royal Bank of Canada had loaned some money to this guy who was running, I think, a barbershop or something. And the loan wasn't going so good. So they said, you know what? If you get your young brother to sign the guarantee of the debt, we'll forbear and we won't call the loan. And like this brother had just turned 18 and stupidly he said, yep, I'll sign it. He signs the guarantee. Well, about three or four months later, Royal Bank says, yeah, you're still stiffing us. So we call the loan. The, the young brother, hot-headed and tempestuous though he may be, goes rushing to the Royal Bank branch and demands to see the guarantee that he signed. <laughs> Bank manager duly presents it to him. What does the young brother do? He rips off the signature line and devours it in front of the bank manager. He puts it in his mouth. He chews it. He eats it up. And he says, no guarantee. Aha. <laughs> and this is in the 60s. So what did the bank manager do? He called the cops and they came. I, I don't think they would come now. <laughs> he did, but <laughs> and so what happened next? They take the young brother into a small room and a police officer, an armed officer, stands over him and requires him to sign a new guarantee. Wow. Now, the, the, mor the moral of that story is the following. A, a guarantee signed at gunpoint is not enforceable. Thank goodness the Court of Appeal told us. And number two, the more interesting one, that signature line, that's not what you're suing on. You're not suing on this piece of paper. You're suing on the promise, and the piece of paper is evidence of that promise. The fact that he chewed it up doesn't mean that he didn't make that promise, mm -hmm. right? It has nothing to do with whether he made that promise. And if I just started by telling you a story about the laws of evidence, it would be dry as hell. But I got you dripping off every word because I'm talking about this weirdo kid who's chewing up a guarantee and signing one at gunpoint. Mm -hmm. If you think of them as stories, they come alive. And then the moral of the story is what law school calls the ratio decidendi, mm -hmm. right? That's all it is. They're fables. They're passion plays. And I'll, I'll just wrap up this soliloquy with a quick comment that a mediator once told me that I thought just rings so true. Um, you know, my client was in the middle of this mediation and, you know, we're just about there on the number and my guy said, but I need them to admit they were wrong. That's my big problem. And the mediator looked around and he said, you see all these law books behind me? It was one of those law libraries where he's got, you know, dozens and dozens of books. Um, he says, in every one of those case books, there's a couple dozen cases. There's hundreds of the books. There's thousands of cases behind me. In every one of those cases, except exactly half of the people think the judge got it wrong. <laughs> No one ever at the end of this says, you know what, you're right. I'm a total liar <laughs> and a fool. Vindication is not on offer here, only a check. 
So do you like the check? Then leave the vindication. I use that story with my clients all the time because it's so true. That's not what's on offer here. All we're doing here is talking about who pays who, what, when. That's what litigation is. You know, the That's higher just, mind feels. We we just don't see it all that often. Yeah, I mean, if only the people would leave out the emotion and and look at it like that, it would make probably your job a lot easier. Because um, there's there's usually all that emotional tension that's uh, brought to the table, uh, you know, maybe less so in commercial real estate, but I know in the estates world, that's almost the sole reason that people go to litigation. That's the reason people start litigation. That's not the reason they end it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because what, what we often see is those passions fade over time and as legal bills increase, mm -hmm. right? What was a stalwart statement of absolute principle, often founders in the crucible of legal fees and delay. And that's actually by design. Our system is designed that way. That's, that's a feature. It's not a bug, right? The whole way that our system is set up is to bring people to settlements and conclusions. Right? We have this cost regime in Ontario that shifts burdens and losses between parties with one objective, to increase the risks as you approach trial to discourage people from going to trial. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the goal. Now, it's really fun for us lawyers to do trials. It's really fun for us to get judgments. But to those young lawyers out there, let me remind you, your clients don't pay you to win cases. You might think they do, but they don't. They pay you so that you give them a check from the other side, if you're a plaintiff, or they pay you to not have to write a check to the other side if you're a defendant. That's the only thing that matters. I could line the walls of my office with judgments that have been entirely uncollectible do you think those clients believe they accomplished their goal, acquiring an expensive piece of paper? I think not. If I'm not putting money in my plaintiff client's pocket in a commercial real estate deal, in a, in a commercial litigation matter, I'm not actually accomplishing their goal. I'm accomplishing mine. Doug, I feel like I can sit and listen to you for hours and, and speak to you for hours and, and go into all sorts of different topics, but time is somewhat running out, so I want to give you a, a last word, a general advice to the young lawyers among us. Um, what what kind of advice do you, do you suggest for young lawyers and specifically for real estate lawyers? I'm going to speak about litigation first, and then I'll talk about real estate. Um one thing that I didn't talk about enough when you asked me a question about mentorship and experience, I said you learn by doing, and that's very much true. But one thing that I think is really difficult for young lawyers today because of the pandemic and the change to virtual court hearings is this. I learned so much sitting on a court bench, waiting for my motion to be heard, having to watch some other motion I knew nothing about. Mm -hmm. Waiting my turn was an incredible way to learn. Mm -hmm. 
Why was it incredible? Because I got to see other lawyers' styles. I got to see other lawyers' good attributes, negative attributes. And especially when you're young, I, I couldn't tell why the good lawyers, everything seems so easy, but I sure as heck could tell why the bad lawyers mucked it up so bad. So I got to watch lots of that while I was waiting my turn to speak. Mm-hmm. And another great thing about watching a motion you don't know anything about, you're, you might be in the same position as the judge, right? You're coming to it fresh. You don't have background. You haven't lived and breathed with this case for months like you have if you're one of the litigants or one of the lawyers. You're coming to it cold. So you learn really quickly when you're watching a motion that you don't know anything about how much gets skipped over and assumed and how damaging that can be to someone who's hearing it for the first time. So for those young lawyers who are interested in litigation, Nowadays, a lot of motions are done by Zoom. And that kind of takes away my favorite part of the gig, but so be it. That's the future. This old man yells at clouds, but other than that, it's the way the future is going to be, and I'm good with it. But to young lawyers, if you show up for a motion and you're going to be heard later, take the opportunity to watch the other one. You will learn so much just by osmosis. At first, you might not learn what to do that will be good, but you will sure as hell learn what not to do. Mm-hmm. And even if you get nothing more than cautionary tales, you will be a better lawyer for it. Becoming a persuasive advocate is about learning what style of persuasion, formality, and specificity works with you. The way I do it is not the way another lawyer does it. I had to come into my own and learn what would make me compelling with my way of looking at the world, with my way of communicating. Um, you can't just wear someone else's shoes and expect that they're going to fit. You're going to have to try on a bunch and figure out which ones fit for you. And the way you do that is you go to the shoe store and you look at a whole bunch of shoes. Mm-hmm. That's my rant about learning to be a good litigator. Now. For real estate lawyers, one of the most important things is the phone. And young lawyers tend to be afraid of the phone. I know I was. Um, What do I mean by that? We all get worried. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I do this? At least in, in an email, I can write exactly what I mean to say. And there's comfort in that. But that misses the relationship point and I have many times had to step in and tell an associate stop emailing pick up the phone call the person because email communication you can mess up the tone it can take forever people get all twisted about something you didn't mean and they have a question and you don't get to answer it those relationships It is so much harder to be an ass to someone when you're talking to them directly. When you're emailing, it is easier. And if you are being a jerk to someone, even accidentally, it makes accomplishing your goal harder. So don't be afraid of the phone. The other thing I would say is get out personally to all those CPDs that you can. 
because that's how you become notorious in a good way in your area of the bar. You get recognized and known. Hey, didn't I see you at that one last month? Yeah, good to see you again. That stuff matters. It matters because if you have a problem on a file and you've met that person before, it's so much easier to deal with it, right? On a transactional basis, you have an endpoint, and that's completion of the deal. So you should be doing things that put you in the best position to work together with the other side to complete that deal. And, you know, it's trite, but you catch a hell of a lot more flies with honey, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it behooves you to become a member of the bar and a member of the community because you'll learn how people manage difficult situations and you'll have a network of mentors to rely on when something comes up that you don't know about. And having that network is absolutely invaluable. No one expects that any of us knows all the law. There's too much of it. But our job is to know when we don't know something and to know how to find the answer. So get out to CPDs. Doug, we're, we're so lucky to have you in the real estate bar in Ontario and as a CPD contributor, keep it up. Uh, you know, I look forward to speaking to you again. I'm sure we can have a, a part two and go into all sorts of different directions. But for now, I really thank you for your time and your insights and frankly, your inspiration. It's been inspiring to uh, meet someone who loves what they do and uh, it's, it's contagious. So um, thank you and uh, look forward to seeing you around. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, great to get to participate in this. Thanks, Avi. God bless you for now, Doug. Be healthy and well. Be well.